So Palm Sunday is one of those special days of the, the church season that we, we mark here as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And, and uh, I do want to just reiterate one, one more special day that we mark. Of course, we do Easter next Sunday, and I hope everyone will be able to come join us for worship. And we are doing a 9.30 kind of breakfast time gathering. We just want to be able to pe- people to get together ahead of time. And so there'll be coffee and some breakfast items in the, the missions hall right there, cafe. The other thing I want to just kind of put, put in your head around is this Maundy Thursday service. Thursday night at 7. It'll be something we've never done here. It's something I kind of had developed at a previous church. And we're going to share communion around the table. And I would just say for parents of like elementary school kids, it is definitely a, it's a great service to kind of help them understand what's going on and what the, the, the meaning of what Christ did on that, that thir- you know, on Good Friday. So Thursday night at 7, would love for you to come. We do ask you to sign up so we kind of make sure we have uh, tables set up for enough people. Um, and if you want to take one of these things and even invite someone to come with you to, to share communion with you around the table, we would love to see that. This morning, I want to start in a little bit of an odd way as we're talking about Jesus' arrival, and that is talking about secret identities. And so I'm going to see how many you can identify, and I know we might need the help of some of the teenagers up in the balcony, so if, if you're not able to figure these out. So the first set, I bet you can. So who is Clark Kent? Bruce Wayne. Diana Prince. Wonder Woman, good, that's harder. Peter Parker. Bruce Banner. The Hulk. Okay, the second round's a little harder. Let's see how we do. Wanda Maximoff. Scarlet Witch. Arthur Arthur Curry. I heard it. Think water. Aquaman. This is really hard. Selena Kyle. Catwoman, yes, she was just in the the movie they just did. Scott Lang, Ant-Man. Okay, this last one's really hard. Bob Parr. The the parents probably, Mr. Incredible. uh, It's not DC or Marvel, so Mr. Incredible from The Incredibles. All right, so, oh, last one. The, carpent, the son of Joseph, the carpenter from Nazareth. Jesus, the Messiah. What I would suggest is Jesus had somewhat of a secret identity. Um, in the recent Spider-Man movies, the, the, you know, they always try to keep their, their true identity secret from everyone. And the recent ones with, uh, what's, what's his face? Tom, Tom Holland? Okay, so they've done three of them now. In the first two, the only people who knew his secret identity were his friends, right? He had a couple people who knew his identity, but for the most part, it was, of course, secret. And then at the end of the second movie, the bad guy reveals it on the internet that Peter Parker is Spider-Man, and movie three is about all the problems that that causes for him now that everyone knows who he is and that's really the plot line of the most recent Spider-Man movie is is how his secret identity had become known. 
Jesus, in most of his public ministry, in his public ministry, did not go around saying, look at me, I'm the Son of God, watch me do these amazing miracles, um, look at me, I'm the Messiah. He, he, didn't, he didn't go around talking about who he was. He never emphasized himself that he's the son of David, a descendant of David. Um, he didn't come and say, I'm the Christ, um, I'm the one who came to save his people. Instead, Jesus kept his ministry, his identity secret, sort of. I mean, by what he did, it was clear he was more than just another teacher or even a prophet. But he didn't say it. He wanted people to see it, to discover it. He showed who he was by what he did, how he taught, how he interacted with people, because he wanted them to discover who he was for themselves. So Jesus did all these miracles. He healed you know, lepers and blind people. But oftentimes, especially if it was a more, sorry, more dramatic miracle, he would pull them aside away from the crowd, right? So especially when he did the, he raised the, the young girl from the dead. He, he did not do that so that everyone could see what was going on. He, he was a little bit, and, and when he did raise that girl from the dead, he said, don't tell anyone. It's not yet time. With his disciples, he, like I said, he waited for them to figure it out. He did amazing things, such as like calming the storm, that they said, who is this guy? And when they finally figured it out, when Peter said, you are the Christ, you are the Holy One of God, the Son of the living God, Jesus says, yep, you got it. And then it says in Matthew 6.20, he says, but then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. It was not yet time. Later, he, he took him up on a mountain and showed him his glory, like confirming it in their minds. Wow, he really is from God. And on the way down, he says, now don't tell anyone. Wait until after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Then you can tell people. Now, there were a few private conversations where Jesus owned up to who he was, namely the, the Samaritan woman that he tells her out front he is the Messiah. Um, his conversation with Nicodemus reveals the same, but his public teaching was different. It was not time for the crowds to know until Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday was that time. Jesus would go public. He would arrive in Jerusalem and go public about his identity as the son of David, the Christ, and the rightful king over the Jewish people. You know, there was King Herod. He was not the rightful king. Jesus, the one who entered, was the true and right king. And Jesus intentionally arrives. He does this intentionally. He arrives to fulfill the messianic prophecies, especially the one here is Zechariah 9. In other words, he, he's doing it to show who he is. He's making a statement. Palm Sunday is his public um, coming out as the king of the Jews. So I'm going to go ahead and read through the scripture. I had us read Psalm 118 um, prior to this 
because I want to just kind of read this chunk by chunk. And it's the same story the kids had done at the beginning. But, but let me read each part, and then we'll discuss it. So from Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. So first thing that Jesus does differently on this day is to assert his rights as the king. Um, he, he claims, he's, he commandeers a donkey for this arrival. Now, a donkey was, was not a pet. It was a valuable animal. And it, it would be the equivalent if I said, hey, hey Jeremy and, and um, Len, could you guys go into Schenectady and I need a pickup truck. Could you go, you know, just say, you know, go take one. And if someone asks you, just say, hey, the pastor has need of it, right? Like that, that's the equivalent to what a donkey would, would be. Um, but he's the rightful king of the Jews. And he exercises his privileges of such. And the donkey is important in this arrival. Um, it would be the right way for him to enter. So we go on to verses 4 and 5. It says, this took place to fulfill what is spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The donkey is the right and proper way for a king to arrive. Zechariah, 500 years before Jesus, gave this prophecy about the king arriving on, on a donkey. Um, now, why was that? That doesn't sound like a very grand way to enter Jerusalem to me. But think about it this way. Riding on a donkey, you come in slow and easy, right? You are, you are visible to all. It, it's the equivalent. So think about it this way. Should, should the president arrive at the White House in a tank? No. He arrives in a limo. And in the old days, right, even as a JFK, like you'd have that sitting up, waving to the crowd for all to see. The, the donkey is the equivalent. If he came in a horse, horses or whatever, th those are war animals. That's like coming in a tank. But by coming in slow and easy on a donkey, he's being received as the king. And there's some, some Old Testament precedent for this. And it comes down to which of King David's sons would follow him as king. He had a couple different sons that tried to claim the throne um, while David was still alive. One of them was Absalom. Um, Absalom, uh, it talks about how he got himself a chariot and horses, and he had 50 men to run before him. Absalom came to Jerusalem to overthrow his father and to, to kick him out, and he tries to take the kingship, and so he arrives in with chariots and horsemen. And David has to eventually defeat Absalom to keep his kingship. Later, when David is old and he's of, of age, it's which of his sons will inherit. One of his sons, Adonijah, puts himself forward, tries to take the kingship, even while David is, is uh, still alive, but, but um, in his old age and unable to come on his own. 
It says, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. So what does David do? He hears about Adonijah, and that's not the son he wanted to to become the next king. He had chosen Solomon to be the next king. But David's too old to come himself, so he has his, his key advisors, the important people, and they say, take Solomon and put him on my mule. So he says, take with you all the important people and put Solomon on my mule and ride him into town and declare that he is the rightful king. That's, that's the prophecy Zechariah is drawing from. The rightful way to the son of David to claim the kingship is slow and easy, um, humble, coming with salvation. Jesus knows what he's doing. He's not accidentally fulfilling uh, the prophecy of Zechariah. It's not like, hey, guys, we've walked all the way from Galilee. I know it's 60, 80 miles to get to to the city, and I just can't walk anymore. Could you guys go get me a donkey just so I can ride the last few miles into the city? I know we walk everywhere, but I'm I'm just tired. No, he is intentionally doing this because he's making a statement. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So first of all, there's actually two donkeys involved. It gets a little confusing. Um, it's, uh, I remember it was Dr. Gordon Huenberger, an Old Testament professor that kind of helped explained it in a way. So Jesus was going to ride an unbroken foal, uh, a, never, a, a young colt never ridden on before. And so what they would do is they used his mother. So the disciples would lead the mother of this young donkey. Jesus would ride on the, the young one, but the mother, he would just follow the mother along. So it made it actually easier for them to kind of lead the procession into, into Jerusalem. And as they come before him, the crowds are, are feeding into this. They see it, and they respond. And it says they, they put their cloaks um, on the road before him because the, the righteous one should not even, even the donkey he's riding should not trod the earth. And they, they cut branches, and they put that down, or they wave the branches in the air. That's why we, we call it Palm Sunday. The, the branches would symbolize, was the symbol of the Jewish people. It was on their coins. And it also symbolized the, the, the victorious entrance. It's what they would do in the ancient world, waving palms as a, a sign. Um, you know, if you were coming back as a victorious general and you're entering New York City, how would they greet you? What would they do? What would they toss down? Ticker tape or confetti, right? If you were um, arriving in L.A., for some Oscar show or something. How would they greet you? How would you enter? The red carpet. This is that equivalent. They're laying branches down. Verse 9. It says, The crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Those are all quotes from Psalm 118 which was one of the Passover psalms. 
And it's in the psalm, it's talking about the Lord. And yet they're applying it to Jesus, the one who's entering. And it's this, this theme of victory and salvation that's coming. Hosanna is not a Greek word. The New Testament's mainly written in Greek. But um, this is actually a, a Hebrew word. And, and it's talking about the recognition of them. It means, O oh Lord, save us. It's recognizing that Jesus is coming as the Savior. Hosanna in the highest, recognizing that Jesus comes from God. Verses 10 and 11. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So there's actually a mix of people in the crowd, mix of responses. Certainly this procession was being led by Jesus' disciples, not just the 12, but a whole crowd of disciples, many of whom, most of whom, would have come from Galilee. Galilee was a Jewish area up in the north of Israel, 60 to 80 miles from Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus did the bulk of his miracles and healings was done in Galilee. There, the people would have seen what Jesus had done. They, they were ready to proclaim him the, the true and rightful king and savior. Now, there were also, though, because it was this great Passover festival, Jews from all over the world entering at the same time. All over these Greek and Roman cities, they would be coming. And they're like, we've never heard of this guy. Who is he? What's going on here? Tell us. And so they, they answer... Um, the Galilean ones who are convinced, they, they answer, this is, this is Jesus, the prophet. Um, and so that's the kind of the quick answer. But there would have been a lot of skepticism. Is, you know, should we really be chanting this? this? And, and then we'll find out later there were some who were indignant at the claims being made this day, who were opposed. So there's a very mixed response within this crowd. Jesus rides his the donkey, all the way up to the temple. And then it gets to verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Jesus goes straight to the temple. Now, here's what's interesting. He had been the only one riding. You did not ride to the temple. You walked. That was the, the normal. You walked to the temple mount within the city. Um, in the Jewish Mishnah, it was said if you could not walk, like if you were too young to actually walk yourself, you were exempt from coming for Passover. Like it was expected you would walk into this as a pilgrim. So the fact that Jesus rode the donkey was, was all the way up to the steps was making a part of that statement. And then, in case it wasn't clear, he enters the temple as if he owned the place, right? He sees what's going around, and he begins clearing it out. Now, likely they were in the courtyard of the gentles, Gentiles, the, the courtyard that the people who are non-Jewish were allowed to go into. And in there would have been all these animals and money changers. They'd made it into a circus. They, they, saw, they saw all these foreign pilgrims as, as a way to make money rather than a place of worship. And Jesus clears that out. And, and he, you know, the, the, God, the God's temple is meant for worship, not for marketing. 
not for just bringing in more and more money. And, and, but, but the key is, what gave Jesus this right to do this? I mean, can you imagine like some guest preacher coming in and saying, how dare you have palms on the, or have all the sound equipment on the stage, you know, and starts throwing it out, you know, that would be the equivalent. That what, what gives Jesus his right? I mean, he's not from, even from Jerusalem. He's from up north. He's the right because he's the true and rightful king over God's people. So, what happens after he does this? In verse 14, it says, The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Having taken over the courtyard temple, look what happens. The blind and the lame come to him at the temple. The ones who maybe were normally shut out from worship or at least marginalized, they never got the attention. Those are the ones that Jesus welcomes into his presence. He changed the whole perspective in the place. And then you got children running around shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And it's, it's, it's loud and it's, it's a little bit chaotic what happens when you let, let children be involved. Um, and those who are in charge don't like it. They are indignant. How dare you do this? This is not the way it should be. This is not proper. You're not keeping things in order. And we know where the story goes from here, don't we? We know that this is the beginning of Holy Week. And, and five days later would be what we call Good Friday, the day Jesus was, went to the cross, where the, the ones who were so indignant that they would not accept Jesus as their king, instead they would hand him over to the Romans to be crucified. So, why should we care? Why should we care about Jesus' arrival to a city 2,000 years ago? Why should we care that someone, even if he was the rightful king, was rejected and put to death by his city? Why, why should that matter to us? Let's go back to Zechariah's prophecy for a moment. We read just part of it. We read verse 9 where it talks about he, he will arrive humbly on a donkey and... Um, and Come as the king. And then the next verse says this. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak to the nations. His rule will, shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So 500 years after David this is when Zechariah wrote. And he wrote, a prophecy to encourage the Jews of that time. You see, when Zechariah wrote, they had no king. Their king had been killed by the Babylonians and they had taken into exile. And then God miraculously brought them back from exile to Jerusalem again. And he says, we have no king right now, is what Zechariah is saying. But don't worry, people of God. One day, the king will come. He will come gentle and humble and lowly, riding on a donkey. And when he comes, it will not be using military power with war horses and chariots and battle bows. 
Instead, he will speak peace to the nations. This king will not bring his kingdom by military power. He's going to bring it a different way. And then ultimately, this last line, he shall rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. See, he would come not just as the king of the Jews. He would come as the king of all peoples that God has made. He will come to bring his kingdom upon the, the whole earth. Jesus came with an agenda far greater than, than man could have envisioned. They, they were expecting a king would fight the Romans and liberate the Jews. Instead, he came and gave his life on a Roman cross so that he could speak peace to the nations, so that he could bring peace between God and man. He could save us from the guilt of our sin, the guilt and the sin that was destroying our souls, that he could set us free to live for God. And he would come and give his life and be raised again from the dead so that in Acts 2.36, it could say this, it could say that God has made Jesus, the one that was crucified, both Lord and Christ. Jesus, the one who arrived, was Lord and Christ, not just of Jerusalem, but of all peoples. Jesus came to be king. And he comes to each one of us. He comes to be king and Lord over our lives. He wants to save us from our sin. He wants to, to, to come into our life and show us what life was made for and how to live it. You see, inside of every person, something we can't see, but there, there's this throne in our heart. It's like this inner place of, of rule within our inner being that makes the decisions for our life. It's from that inner throne that, that our life is ruled, that it decide, you know, what, what makes the rules, what makes the boundaries, how do I live? It is answered from that place within us. And the question is, who rules on the throne of your heart, of your life? Now, the normal answer is, I do it myself. I choose my own path. I rule my own life. I follow my own heart, as the world tells us to do. But the truth is, even if we say, I rule my own life, what happens? Mostly we end up being ruled by some other thing. Ruled by some addiction, ruled by our own passions, ruled over by some relationship, ruled over by some desire to, be, um, to gain fame or recognition. Usually there's something that ends up taking over our life and that the decisions all about become in that direction, oftentimes with destructive consequences. Jesus comes. He came to set us free from those things. He comes and says, will you let me be Lord of your life? Put me at the center. Let me show you how life can be lived. Let me show you what peace with God looks like. Let me show you the direction you should go. Trust me. Trust me with that inner place in your heart from which you make your decisions. Let me be Lord of your life. If you want to receive me as Savior, you have to let me be in charge. And that's how Jesus comes to every person. 
See, we all have to make that decision. Will we receive Jesus as our king? And so I want you to think about what kind of the responses did we see on Palm Sunday? And I, I, I can pick out five. I'm sure there's more. But you can see five different responses of the people when Jesus arrived. How have you seen people in our day respond to Jesus in the same way? That's what I want you to think about. So, so first of all, one of the responses on Palm Sunday was the indignant, right? The indignant that, that Jesus would claim to be the one in charge of the temple and the, the, the king. But aren't we oftentimes, aren't there people who are indignant that Jesus would make a claim upon their life? I make my own choices. I decide for myself what is good and evil. I don't need, I don't need nobody of God or religion to tell me what to do. I was in a conversation this week at the barbershop. You oftentimes get into interesting things. And I, it just struck me how the, the person said, well, I, I believe you should, you know, follow the golden rule like such, but I, I don't need any of that other stuff from, from religion. In a sense, what he's saying is, you know, he'll, he'll make sure he didn't do anything too bad. He'll be a decent bloke, but he can decide for himself how he's going to live. You also have the desperate now, the desperate are different in that they recognize that they can't, they're not in charge of their own life, right? They, they recognize that they, they've made a mess of it. They know they need help. They know they need a Savior. They know that they can't do it on their own. And some, they may even be hungry for salvation. We saw that there, the blind and the lame who came to him. And the desperate are the ones saying, Hosanna. And they're hopeful. Could he really be the one that brings salvation? And there are people who, who've realized they've made a mess of their life. And they're looking. And they're trying to decide, can I trust Jesus? Can he make a difference for me? And then there are the fickle. There were some who praised Jesus on Palm Sunday, who, who sang and yelled, and then five day la days later were part of the same crowd calling for him to be crucified, right? The, the hearts of, of men and women can be very fickle. We go up and down. You know, I'll follow Jesus or I'll proclaim him when it works for me, but I'm not so sure I would do the same if, if the crowd was going a different direction. Their enthusiasm waxes and wanes depending on the, the way the wind blows, the fickle. Then there's the joyful whether it be the children or the others chanting Hosanna to the son of David, rejoicing, they see the hope that Jesus came to bring. They come to, to see that Jesus um, is the answer they're looking for. And, and they're excited to, 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 to get a hold of him and, and believe that he's the best thing that's ever happened. Can you say Jesus is the best thing that's ever happened to me? I don't reluctantly come to worship. I can't wait to worship because I know he's worthy. There's no song I could sing to him that he's not worthy of because he's made that difference in my life, the joyful. And then lastly, there was the decided. Those who've decided from the core of their being that Jesus is my king. Those who've declared it publicly and they know that following Jesus means, means giving them him their life and following him all the way along the road, even if it means following him to the cross. When the disciples 
were told by Jesus that, that they're heading to Jerusalem, that's what they thought it would mean for them. They say, let's go with them, that we might die with them. They were still willing to go. They were still willing to follow no matter what it meant. The decided. Have you seen people that fit these different groups in your interactions? What about you? Have you seen yourself, maybe at different times of your life, putting yourself in? Where would you put yourself on Palm Sunday? But at different times of your life, have you been one of these five groups? And then lastly, which, which best describes you now? Which one do you want to be? Which group fits you? Let me pray. Jesus, I, I recognize you are the king. And I'm thankful that you came to me into my life and, and wanted to take over. Lord, I, I know what I would, was like before I knew you. I know what I would be like if I didn't have you. And so, Father, I, I thank you that you came and you sent Jesus to, 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 to get things straight in my heart and in my life. And so I've, I'm, I've learned and I'm learning to trust you more and more with what I have. And so, Father, I, I pray that Jesus would rule um, over me and over all of us here as we learn to follow him and, and we lift this up in the name of the Son. Amen.